Identity Talk. I'm your host, Jana Lopez. Thank you for sharing your time with me. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about uncovering meaning about who we are and how we come to see ourselves. Words and identity are my life. I'm the author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. I teach online writing workshops called Write About Now and offer one-on-one transformative coaching sessions that break you through to deeper clarity and connection with yourself through a guided process I call See Through Words. When it comes to navigating identity funky junk, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope mixed with humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Today's episode is going to be just a little bit different than the ones I typically do in that it's going to be two parts. The first part, I have a conversation with Patrice, and it pretty much goes with the flow of what I typically have conversations about. But come on, Frank Zappa was such an interesting, iconic, and nuanced artist. He had many things that he did, and to honor Frank and really give his fans something more, I invited a guest host, Ty Hitzman. Ty has an impressive library of knowledge when it comes to Patrice and Frank and Patrice's husband, Nolan Porter. And I just knew he'd be able to cover the level of detail Zappa fans need, want, crave, (laughs) and deserve. Please feel free to listen to one part, the second part, both parts. Take your time with it. And I hope you enjoy this very special, interesting, dynamic episode of Identity Talk with Patrice Zappa-Porter. Today, I am super excited to be having a conversation with Patrice Zappa-Porter, who, among many things, is, of course, the sister of Frank Zappa, but is so much more and a talented, creative author and performer and vocalist in her own right and has done some amazing things. And I just felt like given she's seen so much and done so much and has had a very interesting life herself that we would traverse some fabulous ground, of course, covering all the things she cares about today. And, and what holds meaning. So thank you so much for being here with me and for trusting me to have this conversation. I know it's like a big leap of like, let's do this. <laughs> yeah, well, I've done many interviews and I did a podcast about a month or so ago with another friend of mine, uh, Dot Stein. And uh, so, and then I'm doing another one on Friday. So this is like fun. Yeah. How do you, uh, yeah. How do you like being, you know, interviewed and having conversations and many of them cover, I'm sure lots of things, but how does, how do you enjoy it? I do because I can provide information to people. That's kind of why I wrote my book. I kept getting asked over the years, what was it like growing up with Frank? Is he this, is he that? 
So I thought, you know, I'm just going to write a book, get it over with. And everybody <laughs> can read it. And then they won't be bugging me. <laughs> yeah, so well, this, you'll probably this is still, a good way too. Because... You'll probably still get that. I mean, that was one of the questions that I had. But since we're here now, we're going to talk about so many things. Say that with the laugh that, that people always ask you. What's it like being the honorary representative of someone who most people feel like they know? What is that? experience like for you I haven't had too many negative responses I mean a lot of his fans a lot of Frank's fans are so well they call them zappophiles and they're so intense in their love of Frank and stuff and and they all think they own him so anybody on the outside or another person it's like they're viewed they might be viewed as uh, an intruder or you know, if any kind of information I said doesn't agree with what they know, they jump on it immediately. Mm-hmm. And they say, no, no, you're wrong about that. So, but, you know, hey, I grew up with the guy. Get a grip. Right. <laughs> right. And you had other brothers, too. So let's talk a little bit about, mm-hmm. before we get into the Frank element, you had other brothers. So let's talk about what it was like being the only girl in a household of three brothers. I, I can't imagine that. I had one and that was plenty. Well, I was the baby and I do have one sister from my dad's previous marriage, So, but I didn't live with her. She was already, you know, I was six and she was 36. You know, she was 20 years, no, she was 26. That's right. She was 20 years older than me. She was born 31. I was born in 51. And, uh, so she was already, you know, living her life, married and with uh, teaching and et cetera. So I came along. I was, my mom kept saying every time she'd have a kid, she was hoping it would be a girl and it kept coming out a boy, a boy. She's, by the time you came along, I didn't care. I was too tired. <laughs> so here I was, the youngest, the only girl, and I wanted to play with my brothers. I wanted to play whatever they were playing. Put, touch football I wanted to whatever Frank was doing I wanted to play with him and, and my dad would always tell my brothers take care of your baby sister you know don't let her get hurt so I liked it <laughs> yeah you probably got a lot of attention and you probably got an inside view into all those things boys are known for like smelly socks and yeah. <laughs> rough and tumble stuff <laughs> Actually, yeah my mom took care of their laundry, but uh, <laughs> um, I would hope that at least sometime during their growing up stages, they, you know, eventually would do their own laundry, but I don't know. I was too young to find out. Yeah. What was your mom like? You, Her name is Rosemary, you said, and what, what is she, what was she like? Mom was great. She, she was, she put up with a lot, you know, with. You know, my dad was very uh, active and the boys, then I came along. And so I was like a little doll. She could dress up and, you know, put permanents in my hair and what have you. By the end of her life, she was on like two or three different blood pressure medications because of all the, the stuff that went on over the decades. You know, Frank being arrested for something he didn't do, you know, and, and having to spend time in jail. And it was there was a lot of stuff that went on, but she kept her faith. She was a, a devout Catholic, Roman Catholic, 
And uh, it, as much as she wanted us all to follow that, you know, it, it, that wasn't working. You know, so we all kind of branched off into our own thing. I, I don't know. I think my brother Bob, his marriage, he was a Unitarian. I don't know what that is. But I think that's what uh, his, he was going to that church. And then Frank, of course, I don't know what he did. I know he believed in a, a higher being, shall we say, the supreme being. I don't think it. he called it God, though. And Carl, he was just, he went wherever he was led. In his later years, he became a little bit more independent. Now they're all together doing whatever they want to do, mm -hmm. looking healthy and happy. How did that factor into your faith? Well, actually, the night that I had gone out with some friends and I got... But this time I was divorced from my first husband and I was living with my mom, with my son, David, and I was invited to go out one night and I got home 10 minutes after they told me to be home. And when I went in to check on my son, because he slept in a crib in my parents' room, because it was just a two bedroom uh, duplex and Carl had the other room. I didn't hear anything as far as breathing goes because I wondered where my dad was. And I looked in the bathroom, the doors were open, the light was out. I looked back on the bed and he was laying there. I guess he had sat back on the bed and fell back and everything went. He had uh, diabetes pretty bad. It affected his heart and he had passed away. I wrote to a friend of his, a longtime friend of his, Jeff Wardlaw. And I told him what happened, and he sent me back two articles by Helen Kubler-Ross and Vincent Norman Vincent Peale. They counseled the dying. You know? So I read this voraciously. I went through the whole thing because I, I got to thinking, you know, why, why did God take my father? You know, he, he wasn't a real churchgoer, but I, I'm sure he had a faith. He was so afraid of dying, but when I found him, the look on his face was so peaceful. It was amazing, and I know he's okay. In fact, he came to visit me after he passed away and to let me know he was okay. I I, I walked away from Catholic Church. I thought, this is not, not for me. I mean, you know, you get enough guilt from everyday life. Right. But sitting in a, a, a service with a priest saying, you're going to hell. <laughs> well, guess what? father right. we're already here right hey right so i just i walked away and i didn't turn back and uh, i found other things to go to the now i've uh, converted to judaism mm -hmm. my husband nolan was, had converted himself and i told him i said i want to go to your services i want to see what it's like i fell in love with the music the, the camaraderie the prayers the family orientation of it and so I said that's it I'm I'm gonna convert and I did and I'm happy that's nice and that's nice I think we all have to find our own way and religion holds so much uh pull or push over people in terms of how they choose to live their lives and the quality of their mm -hmm. lives it's not just about the choices it's about how you feel about your life and I can imagine, did your mother have any angst or worry about 
Frank and his choices because he was so vocal about being against the grain. It just seemed like he said and did as he pleased. And I can imagine for a mother who was right. Roman Catholic, that might have been, <laughs> that could have been hard. <laughs> yeah, it was a little stressful. It was stressful, but, you know, there were, I think my mom and dad were, were so proud of him for what he accomplished. You know, sometimes when you're with somebody and they have such a strong personality like Frank did, you kind of have to let go mm -hmm. and let them do what they got to do. Mm -hmm. It's just like a parent and a child. You have to say, okay, I've done what I can do. You're on your own. And he went. Well, you see, he surpassed all everybody's uh, expectations. Music-wise, lyric-wise, uh, thought-wise, right. everything-wise. And I'm glad to hear that you say your your parents were, were proud of him. They must have been proud of all of their children, uh, it sounds like, um, and certainly learning how to, I think when we get older, maybe that's when we learn how to let go in, in ways that are more challenging when we're younger. I think when we first have kids, maybe you experienced this too, because when you had your children and you were watching them grow, you know, as mothers, we always want to hold on and learning the lesson of letting go is like never, it always comes up. Maybe you can correlate now that you're a mother and have grown children and even grandchildren, how your parents must have felt with their children. Do you see, get perspective of how they dealt with things? My father was very strict with me. Um, I wasn't allowed to date. You know, I mean, it was an Italian family, okay? Both my parents are Italian, Greek origin. The, the name Zappa is Greek. And so he had his, his way of dealing with uh, his kids. You know, he didn't, and he had a hard time uh, letting go, I think, you know, letting us all be ourselves. And sometimes when that happens, it's like a prisoner finally seeing, you know, a way to get out and they take it. Being subdued or, I don't know what the word is, uh, you know, cloistered, <laughs> you know, when, when the time came, I found somebody and I, I got out, you know, and it wasn't the right way and it hurt his feelings, but I had my son and that kind of melted everything. And uh, he loved my son very much. And, you know, sadly he passed away before he could see him grow up. But yeah, there's, there's differences. I, with my kids, I got them to where they could be on their own. I taught them. I kept telling them all the time, take care of yourself because I won't be around the rest of your life to hold your hand. And especially when they would go to work, I said, best job you can have, in my opinion, is to work in a restaurant because you get paid, you get to eat. What's, what's better than that, you know? Right. <laughs> Aside from draining it on yet. What was your first job? I, right after I graduated in 69, I worked at what was called the Photomat. I don't know if you know what they I are. absolutely like, do know what the Photomat is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yellow little, roof, little blue building. <laughs> you sit by yourself, you got like this much room around you to maneuver. And yeah. uh, people would drive up 
drop off their film. I'd give them their ticket. And then they we'd take all the stuff we and the guy would come pick it up and then they'd bring back the pictures. People would come back. It was a it was cool because I didn't have to deal with any office politics. I was by myself. I could put a radio in there and listen. You know, I don't think I had to answer too many phone calls, but that was a cool job. And if there was a photo mat right now, I think I'd go <laughs> see if I could get a job. Right. I don't blame you. That would be fun. What were you listening to? You said you put your radio on. What what music was in your life and in your house? And did you like your brother's music? I liked, of course, Frank's music. I listened to the records all the time. Um, but, you know, at that time in 69, I mean, there was the Beatles Beach Boys, you know, that kind of stuff. So when when you're listening to that, the I'll tell you a story, when Frank came over right after Freak Out came out, he came over to the house and he brought the album and he was wearing the same coat, the fur coat, the long fur coat that he had on in the picture of the album. And he came over with his long hair flying in the wind. And my mom was changing sheets on the bed, doing mom stuff. And me and I think Carl was there. I don't think any, it was just me and Carl and mom. And so he comes over and he, he get out the little record player and he puts on the album, you know, and we're listening to uh, I'm Not Satisfied, came to Who Are the Brain Police? And the part where, you know, I'm still going, I think I'm going to die. I think I'm going to die. And I'm looking over at mom and she's looking at me and we're going, whoa. And Frank goes, this great <laughs> i said yeah frank it's bitching <laughs> it is it was you're used to listening to the beatles and the beach boys and all of a sudden you're listening to this so it, it was quite the uh, culture shock but i loved it yeah and it, it must be interesting or sort of surreal to have somebody who's your brother you've grown up with rough and tumble you've hung out you've done things and then to hear a song or music that I mean did you expect that kind of music from him the thing is uh one song was called uh status back baby I was supposed to sing that song he was going to have me sing it and uh it was the one I'm losing status at the high school I used to think that it was my school Ooh, and then, you know, it goes on from there. And I was supposed to sing that, but something happened and I didn't get to. So <laughs> he was also going to have me do a bunch of songs that he wrote on an album and call it My Brother is a Mother, <laughs> which is the name of my book. But it's instead of is, it's a was because he's not here. But my first husband didn't want me to do it. So that's the last time I let a man tell me what I could and couldn't do. Sounds like your parents had a traditional, whatever that means, a traditional marriage, you know, coming from an Italian family. Mm -hmm. And then growing up in the 60s, 70s, where things were changing around ideas about marriage and stuff. So how did you find your own way about who you were going to be in that if, you're, if you were married to somebody who wasn't really supportive or even, you know, maybe they had different ideas. How did you find your way as a woman? Like, this is not going to work. Well, after, after I, I split up with uh, my first husband, my son's father, another man who became uh, my second husband, and he 
we had the two girls together and he was like a, a traditional, well, not really, I don't know. Uh, he was from Minnesota, so they had a whole way of looking at things, I guess, different. Uh, you know, I, I took care of the house, the kids, cooked the meals, washed the clothes, da-da-da-da. And then I started getting interested in doing more music because I've been, when I was like 11, I think I picked up my dad's guitar and I started playing and Frank would show me stuff on the guitar and, and then told me, get to, now get to work. Mm -hmm. And I did. I started writing songs, singing. And then when I was with my kids, and then after my second husband and I split up, then I got more into it and I met a gentleman named Paul Hilton, and uh, I played with him and his band, and we did this, you know, we played different places, and uh, record. I recorded with him, and, and um, that's when I got more interested in doing what I wanted to do. Now, I used to play guitar, but my hands don't cooperate anymore, so I can't do it. <laughs> you still sing and, and enjoy performing and being part of that? I do. I haven't done anything. I haven't performed any time because the last almost year I've been taking care of my husband who passed away on the 4th of February. That's no one. We did a lot of work together. Every month at Shabbat services, we were always singing, singing a song. We did music for the service. There would be like shows or bands that would want us to come and sit in with them or, you know, he was very active in the 70s and 80s. He performed in uh, Bali, uh, Singapore, uh, Alaska, he had a gig in Alaska. So he was all over the place. I was primarily in the San Fernando Valley, going from place to place and being recognized and uh, doing that was, a, I had a couple bands, but that is such a pain in the butt. So I just sat in with people. Tell me about the night you met, Nolan. You said you met in 1999 at a karaoke club and you sang a song together. So tell me about that meeting and that night. A mutual friend of ours named Mary Linville. I met her at a, I was asked to judge a karaoke contest at a place called Leon's, which is now a CBS. Fancy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, she says, you got to meet Nolan. He's a singer. And then he'd tell Nolan, you got to meet Patrice. She's a singer, blah, blah, blah. So I guess we weren't getting together fast enough for her. So she invited me out the day after Nolan's birthday, his 50th birthday. And she invited him the same night, but I didn't know about it. So when I walked in and I sat down at her table, there he was sitting there and kind of like smiling at me. And I thought, oh, God, here we go. Uh, <laughs> I didn't like him too much because you can't have girl talk with a guy sitting there. You know, a girl is like yeah. talking about stuff. Right. So anyway, we, we sat there and uh, conversed and then a song, we, we got a chance to sing a song. It was too much, too little, too late by Johnny Mathis and Denise Williams. Mm. So we got a, and we started singing, and as we're singing, we're kind of like looking at each other, going, "Whoa, this sounds pretty good." Mm -hmm. That was it, and we just started making music after that. You know, uh, he would come over, and I'd make dinner, and we'd figure out 
let's do, let's go somewhere and see if we can get gigs, you know, so we try different places to get gigs and that wasn't so successful. So we decided to do our own show. And in 2000, November of 2000, we put our first show on called Legacy at the Simi Valley Cultural Arts Center. It was fun. We worked really hard on that. And uh, we had other musicians in the group. And I had, uh, uh, what do you call it, a PowerPoint thing of all the pictures of my family. And we had this big screen, huge screen. And they were put up on the screen to, for everybody to see. It was great. It was a great show. Yeah, that sounds nice. And I hear the love when you describe that being able to create with your partner like that, being able to be creative with a partner like that, being able to explore and express things that you care about to me is the ultimate part of love or form of love. If you can find that and Mm -hmm. it's not common that you can. Well, we struggled. We struggled a lot, you know, in our early years, many things were happening, you know, with, with my family, with his family, we didn't get, we didn't start being together, living together until uh, 2004. We met in 99. Sounds like five years, yeah. but I don't do math. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it took a while. We finally moved, found a place to move into after my mom passed away in 2004. We moved into a bungalow in Echo Park, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. We were there for about a year and a half, and then we moved to the San Fernando Valley. And we were there for 14 years until he passed in February. And now I'm up in lovely Ventura. Ventura is lovely. When you guys were build a life and and create a life and figure out what that meant, by then there were things about yourself I'm sure you knew about who you were. There were things about himself he knew who he was. How do you feel like you were able to blend your lives uh, in such a way like you know you said it took five years how was it that you were able to blend lives because you alluded to the fact that it wasn't easy at first he was uh not you know he'd already he'd been married once and I guess that that spooked him enough (laughs) to where he didn't want to try it again but it was okay to be well the the day I went in for a hysterectomy because it was necessary we're in the room where they prepped me, you know, so they gave me the happy shot, you know, and uh, I just kind of looked over at him and I said, you know, I'd really like to be married to you. You look like a frightened horse. And he says, oh, I don't know what kind of husband I'd make. I think I'd make a better boyfriend. I said, nah, you suck as a boyfriend. You'd make a better husband. <laughs> One of the cards he gave me, I think it was a birthday card, it's a picture of a little boy and little girl and they're kissing. And you open it up and it says, uh, he wrote something, then at the bottom it says, you you make me want to be a better man. So I think I got to him some. <laughs> That's sweet. Yeah, he, was, he, he would always say, I don't want to lose my freedom. I said, what are you talking about? When have I ever said to you, you can't do something? Never. I said, okay, you got it, see? It won't hurt. When he finally did ask me to marry him, got down on one knee and he says, what am I waiting for? Will you marry me? I said, oh, yes. And it's going to cost you so much money. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, don't scare me. That's great. Don't scare me. I said, oh, I'm just kidding. He learned. Because, you, know, you know, there'll be times when he'd say, well, I got an invitation to go do some music or something. And then there'd be lots of times when I just didn't feel like going. I'd go, go. You know, or we'd go to a party and, and a lot of the people I wouldn't know. And he'd be kind of concerned about that. I said, look, find me a place to sit, get me something to eat, something to drink, and go work the room. And he did. And then at the end of the night, after he glad-handed and slapped people on the back and, and said hello to women and blah, 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 he'd come and sit by me and he goes, so how are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. And by that time, people had gathered around me. It worked out. Yeah. It worked out big. Yeah. We were a good team. Yeah, it feels that way when you describe it. And cancer is one of those things that I understand you've had a lot of loss through cancer, people. And it never gets easier, I don't think. There's no such thing as like, oh, like you you understand what it is. It's it's difficult every time. And you've had a long line of loss. It was the hardest. Um, and I think the last in January of this year was I think our last doctor's appointment. And I just felt so bad for him because he was so out of it. And, mm -hmm. you know, he had to be helped to do this. And, and when they measured him, he used to, he was 5'11". When they stood him up and measured him, he was 5'9". He lost two inches, you know, and he couldn't believe that. He just, are you sure? I'm 5'11". I was already 5'9". So that was the start. And then, you know, uh, he went to his uh, a longtime friend's uh, house for Thanksgiving. That was his last Thanksgiving last year. And um, I just started taking care of him from like no October, November on. He had a biopsy in October. And I just started taking care of him. I, he said, maybe I should be checked into a hospital. I said, no, because... I'll take care of you. I'd never see him again if he was in the hospital because they don't let you visit now, okay? So I said, no, 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 no. I'll take care of you. And I did. Whatever he needed, whatever he wanted, I went and got it. You know, I was going to the pharmacy, getting pills, you name it. I was doing it. And uh, feeding him and take, you know, cleaning him and whatever had to be done. And... Um, by February, well, late January is when it, it really came to a head, you know, where, you know, I didn't realize, you know, you, you think, oh, maybe he'll pull out of it, maybe he'll get better, and then one day when I said, how you doing, he just kind of like looked at me like, this is it, this is the real shit, mm -hmm. and so I kept saying, I, every time I lay him to sleep, I'd look at him and say, don't you leave me yet. Don't you leave me yet? Mm. He'd shake his head. No, I'm not going. So in early February, it was getting down to the wire. And on February 4th, my daughter and his longtime friend David was there. And I just went and sat next to him. I had my hand right here on his neck. And I could feel his heartbeat was just so faint mm -hmm. and his breathing. And I just looked in his eyes and said, you're the best man I ever had. And I love you with all my heart. I'm going to be okay. Now let go. It's beautiful. 
It was very peaceful. Very peaceful. I had to call the guy to come out. I have to declare him, you know. They take, they listen for a heartbeat and they declared him dead. And then I called the mortuary and these very nice girls came out. Very, two very nice young girls. And they very gently wrapped him. You know, I said, I said, here's, I gave him his, <laughs> I gave him his, in a bag, his teeth. Because <laughs> he had dangerous. To make sure these were in his house, <laughs> and I gave him a bracelet that I'd given him and taken off to make sure this is on his arm. So they take him in the Jewish ceremony. It's called a tahara, where they uh, wash the body and pray over it, and then they wrap. They put him in like these white pajamas, and then they put it put the body in a shroud, and then in a plain pine box. <laughs> Was placed in that, and then they'd have we had the the services, uh, you know, but that's how they do it. But they were so gentle with them; it was so so nice. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's my first uh, and only time I'll ever be a widow. Yeah, I don't ever want to do that again. So this is a friend of my daughter says, "So are you ready to get back in the dating scene?" I said, "Oh my God, no." Why do people even ask no. those questions? I don't even understand why people ask those questions. It feels maybe they're just trying to alleviate their own nervousness or guilt of like dealing with your grief. But that to me would be like the last thing, you know, and, and especially if you're saying he's the greatest yeah. man you've ever had. And, you know, you said you're the greatest woman he's ever had. We know when we're the greatest love of somebody's life. Whether they know it or not, you know, right? I yeah. mean. <laughs> yeah, and he used to tell me, I love you to the moon and back. Because I'd say, you love me? He goes, to the moon and back. And I said, yeah, me too. So it was, it was an experience that uh, I'll never forget. And I have, I'm doing a book about me and him. I'm putting a book together. I want to call it If I Could Only Be Sure. That was the name of one of his biggest hits that he had. His music is still played in England. He's part of a northern soul movement. They love him over there. When the night that he passed, I, you know, I was, after being numbed out for about an hour, <laughs> I went online and I posted it on with a heavy heart. I announced the passing of Nolan Porter. It got there. England, like that, all over the place. I mean, it was immediately everybody knew. Yeah, it was. It was an experience. I don't mind talking to people. You know, I mean, if I was sitting in a restaurant and a guy came over and sat down, and wanted to talk, that's a different thing. But there's no way I'm gonna fall in love with somebody that I can think of. <laughs> That's not even in my lexicon right now. I understand. Maybe after I turn 80. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I definitely understand. An interesting thing to, to be in love and to have love and what love teaches when you're open to it and what it gives you. And I know what that feels like, but you can't always translate it for people who aren't ready or can't see it or don't afraid of it. It sounds like you were both open-hearted and what it gifted you. And to be with somebody 
at that point, at the end of their life, I always think about what death teaches us about life. The lesson is there. It's undeniable that you can't have one without the other. So to be with somebody that you love, your your life's great love and in their passing, what what did it teach you about life? To share. Mm-hmm. Be more sharing. To be a little bit more tolerant. Because there is so much that I am intolerant of after having experienced the crap that comes out of some people. And I'll shut it down before it gets started. But, you know, with him, in this climate that we have today of of Black Lives Matter, and and he says, Nolan was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Beautiful Black man that just, like, people loved him. I mean, he was so well-loved. And he was, and he loved people. He liked to, you know, I used to tell him, Nolan, you're too nice sometimes. And there are some people who do not deserve your niceness, your Mm -hmm. kindness. They don't deserve it. Mm -hmm. So I was watching his back. I used to watch his back a lot, you know, because I knew when somebody was trying to take advantage of it, I could smell it. And I wouldn't allow, I tell him, no, I don't want you to associate with these people because they're going to hurt you. I learned a lot of stuff from Nolan uh, about music. He was a kind and gentle man with a lot of talent. And he had stories. Oh, my God. <laughs> he was related by marriage to Charlie Mingus. Mm-hmm. And somewhere down the line, in the fourth ward of Texas or whatever it was, uh, to Joe Samples. These are two musicians. He met so many people. I used to tell him, God, you have a book in you. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Finally, when he decided to do it, bye-bye. He was gone. That's what I do. I help people that want to write books or have stories and really guide them and inspire them and hold their hands through that process. Because I think so many people believe their stories, uh, they, they have these stories in them or these books and they say they'll do it. They say they'll do it. They'll say they do it. And then they, and then they don't do it. And your stories are your legacy. Your stories are your treasures. Your wisdom are your gifts to the world. And I feel so passionate and strongly about helping people find and unearth their stories because it, it will be too late. It can be too late. We never know what's going to happen. And to, to, to write a book or create something of our legacy is, to me, like one of the most profound things that, that we can do. Those are the gifts that we have to share. Those are the pieces of wisdom, whether it's to our children or our grandchildren or our future spouses or our uh, friends, family, whatever. So you're going to do that now. Yeah. You're going to help with that. You're going to create something that's going to help him realize that it sounds like yeah i'm gonna try to pick up where he might have left off he he would tell me stuff that about his younger days and i can only kind of remember them i might have to do more investigating you know Mm -hmm. to find out about some stuff but uh yeah i i hope to get this you know and i've also asked uh, people if they knew him and they have stories about him to you know, send everything to my email mm-hmm. and uh, I'll put it in the book with pictures if they have them. And I've gotten some really good responses to that, some good stories. That's great. That's really a beautiful thing that you're doing. 
That's amazing. Yeah, it just came to me one day. Maybe I should do a book about Noah. <laughs> you wouldn't do it, so I'm going to have to do it for him. Well, that's how it happens. Yeah. I think people have these ideas. They know there's something in them, and then that light bulb goes off. They think they want to do it, and then sometimes they just get stuck with knowing where to begin. And that, that seems to be the thing that I come across a lot or people's confidence in their ability to tell their stories that, that I, I get that a lot too. There's a lot of fear around our words. There's a lot of fear around what it is that we have to share. We, we want to be hidden. We don't want to be, you know, out there. Yeah. Now, some of us anyway, a lot of people don't, especially with a book. You could have friends who are musicians who can go and perform and sing and do all these things and put themselves out there, but putting their words on papers, like something else for them. I don't know why. Yeah. Frank was, you know, he has his book, um, the real Frank Zappa book. And I think in the front of beginning of it, he says, some, I'm paraphrasing, you know, somebody wants to know, write a book about me. And he couldn't figure out why anybody wanted to know about him. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's all I ever got was what's he like? What was it like to grow up? And so I figured if he did it. He wrote that book in 88, 1988. And I did mine came out in uh, two, my first edition came out in 2003. I put stuff in that he didn't because it's from my point of view, mm -hmm. you know, living next to him. You know, he was a great brother. There were a lot of documentaries that have come out. I know there's two that came out lately. Do you watch those? And what do you think of them when you see a documentary about his life? How does that go? I saw Eat That Question, which was excellent. In fact, our rabbi is a movie critic. He hasn't done that lately, but uh, he would go see movies and he got this invitation to go see Eat That Question. So him and his wife and me and Noam, they invited us and we got to see it in this little enclosed theater. It was really cool. I really loved it. It's a good movie. I liked it. And then this last one that came out, just it's just called Zappa. Yes, I saw that one. And uh, Alex Hunter. Yes, it was. Did you see me as dressed up as a as a ghoul and <laughs> in the beginning of the movie? Yes, it was me and my brother. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize I looked like so young. <laughs> Well, you know, it's got to be kind of trippy my... to have like somebody, a documentarian or a storyteller, see how they piece together your life experience through their lens and what they include and what they don't include. And I, I think that would be kind of surreal. Well, when I saw, I never saw the, the movies of my parents right after they got married. I never saw that. That was amazing seeing him standing outside the church kissing and that was just like wow mm -hmm. that's my mom and dad mm -hmm. in fact I didn't know my parents had first names for a long time you know until I found out that my mom was Rosemary and my dad was Frank was so like, do you do you like the movies do they do they bring up different memories for I you did. yeah no they were very well done very well done I liked them a lot I wish I had a copy of both of them, you know, for my own viewing. But uh, yeah, they were very well done. What is helping to keep you connected and grounded and and moving forward in your, your life right now? What are you inspired by? Well, my daughter, Julie, does a good job. She, she keeps tabs on me, you know, and uh, helps me along. Right now, at this point, I'm 70. And 
so I have health issues that I need to take care of and we've been doing that and you know working on the this book and I have another friend who wants to record me doing whatever songs I want to do he says he's got a band that uh, he will you know record me and I thought I'd do I thought I would re-record if I could only be sure and oh baby which were two of Nolan's hits my daughter found a CD that Nolan and I put together back in, what was he, 2006, called Second Chance. It has uh, some songs of us together, and some, some of him by himself, and some of me by myself. Oh, so fantastic. Good, I want to put those on the CD. It was very, I went, wow, I, I guess I hadn't heard this CD in a long time. Oh, and fantastic. Whoa, some good stuff. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> then I got a few things going. I do a lot of uh, stuff on the computer during the day, and, and I have a 50-inch television set. I wanted to buy this when Nolan was alive. I wanted him to have the pleasure of watching a 50-inch television, and it didn't happen. So, yes, I said, you know what, damn it, I'm going to get it myself. We have to have the things in our lives that make us happy. What is what is all the suffering, right? What is all the self-annihilation and guilt and fear and shit that we pile on ourselves that keep us from being in our own lives fully and completely and honestly? And that's something that I learned in the last year, year and a half-ish, a very profound lesson in my own growth around being honest with yourself and being in conversation with yourself. You cannot cherry pick your experience. You can't only have the good stuff without some of the hard conversations and the difficult stuff that it takes to be fully accounted for and present. Yeah, it's a long, it's, it's an interesting journey. I'm here till I, I'm going to ride this thing till the wheels fall off. <laughs> kind of beautiful and messy and tragic and funny and absurd and interesting and entertaining and beautiful beautiful right it's all there I mean we can choose right we have choices all the time being open and and being in love meaning having love giving love or we can be confined by our own narratives of of other stories can keep us from so many things we're, we're great storytellers to ourselves we're great tricksters and you miss it all i would say some stuff Im imprisons us mm -hmm. it keeps us down mm -hmm. and once you realize that the, you hold the key to the lock on those chains that's when you open up and you're a lot freer i formed a group on facebook called the great american widows hmm. And I got a lot of, a lot of uh, women that were, you know, wanted to join us. Up. Some of the people that request to join the group are a lot of people from Nigeria mm -hmm. that really aren't widows or widowers, or rather. One guy I talked to yesterday because I, I asked them if they don't if they don't answer the questions, I asked them, "Are you a widower?" And they'll write back and say, yes, why do you ask? Or, no, I'm not. I just want to find somebody on this. I said, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. This is for widows and widowers. If you want to meet somebody, go to another site. Oh, and my I God. <laughs> just kind of pray, prayful, I think, to capitalize because on I, people's grief like I that. Put, I put a disclaimer where you post things. I said, this is not a meat market, M-E-E-T. 
this is not where you, you know, if you want to do that, go to another site. This is for widows and widowers that want to share experiences about their life, you know, their stories, whatever, vent, cry, whatever. I want to find a woman I can love. Well, that's fine and dandy, but not here, dear. First of all, you're what, 14? Uh, <laughs> everybody here is way over 50, okay? So unless you have a mother <laughs> complex, get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out now. Oh my God, that's so bizarre. <laughs> Let me ask you that because since you know you're putting yourself out there with people that loved your brother and his music, he was a public figure. You must meet all kinds of interesting, weird, eclectic, <laughs> pandemonium yes. types of people. What mm -hmm. do you make of all that? There's some fucking freaks out there. How do you deal? I let them kind of like say what they have to say. And then if I don't want to participate, I say, well, thank you very much and, and excuse myself or, you know, send them on their way. I've had people ask me for my autograph and like a year later, that person will come back and show me the napkin and say, look, I still have your autograph. And that's kind of cool, a little mm -hmm. freaky, mm -hmm. you know, your hand, I never washed it. And I went, well, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know what to tell you about that. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, there are some real, as I said before, I think they call them Zappophiles. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, they do have, it's like I say, they feel like they own Frank. You know, they own him and he's part of their life. He's not related to them, but they, you know, they want to be. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people on Facebook with the same last name. That doesn't mean I'm related to them. And they're my friends. They're my friends on Facebook. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's cool, too. I'm happy that they thought that much of Frank to be that involved with him and, and loved him so much mm -hmm. that he changed their lives. I've had people come up to me and recite whole lyrics of, of albums, you know, and, and <laughs> after I woke up, it was it was really fun. You know? <laughs> I once auditioned for Frank, but I didn't get the job. I said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I, but uh, yes, people love Frank. They wanted to be part of it, and they are. As long as they love the music, I, I'll never turn down a friend request for somebody that, that is a fan of Frank. You know, that's always going to be there. As long as they don't want to do me any harm or you know, try to take advantage of anything. That's that's okay. But when I smell that, when it comes up, we don't we don't discuss it. Ty had given me some things and showed me some things, and what I learned and appreciated was with anybody, whether it's your brother or any artist, is the quest for exploration and curiosity and experimentation and. He was appeared to not be afraid of going into places creatively with his expression. And he was honest to himself mm -hmm. as he did that along the way. And I admire anybody who puts themselves in that position of like exploring and creativity and expression and not giving a fuck what anybody says or how it goes or what they think and trying all forms, all mediums, whether it's the writing or the music or the composing or all of the, the aspects that he built his 
creative expression on. I mean, that is fascinating to me. That's so admirable for anybody who who's willing to do that. Mad respect, as they say. Yeah, his thing was, I I write music for that I like that I want to hear, and if you like it, that's fine. If you don't, you know, that's fine too. But he was primarily entertaining himself. I think he. Had he wrote a play called Hunching Toot in the eighties, and um, he was auditioning uh, singers to sing Spider of Destiny, and I auditioned for him. Unfortunately, the song was in the key of B. Hmm. I don't know anybody that sings in the key of B, hmm. but someone did, and it was uh, that P H A N A Thana Harris who recorded Spider of Destiny. And uh, I was so disappointed. I wanted so much to do that. But, you know, hey, when you're in alto, yes. and as I got as I got older, Frank told, he, he wrote a song called uh, The Planet of the Baritone Women on Broadway the Hard Way. One day when I was at work, this was like in 1991. Yeah, he calls me up and I'm talking to him on the phone. He says, well, it's nice to hear you're a baritone in your old age. <laughs> Okay, I'll take it, you know. Mm. Yeah, Frank was Frank was great. And like I say, his fans are great too. They're, they're people of substance that found something that they could identify with and love. And like I say, I've had people tell me that he changed their life with his music. And, you know, I, I wasn't going anywhere until I heard Frank. And then that was it. I was hooked. I'm glad to know that. That always makes me feel good. How are you going to keep your inspiration now? You said you, we, we started to talk a little bit about when I said, what have you learned about life? And you said about sharing more and being more open and tolerant. That was a good one. What, what else is keeping your, your inspiration and, and where your heart is in your own life right now? When I listen to, sometimes when I listen to some of Frank's stuff on, like on YouTube or something like that, and it just, it just tickles me no end, <laughs> some of the stuff, and, and that keeps me going. And uh, of course, Nolan's stuff too, you know, I've got to keep that going. So, you know, writing about him, because I already did the thing with Frank. Somebody asked me if I wanted to update my third version, I'm thinking, well, I don't know what else I can put in there, you know, because after a certain period, there's, you know, Frank wasn't there anymore. So mm -hmm. my life isn't as, might not be as important to a reader as it was with Frank. So that's why I've come on to, to do Nolan, to do something about Nolan. Uh, people want to hear about Nolan. I mean, he was, when we went to um, Wales in 2006, before we got there, I told him, I said, you know, you better practice your, you know, signing things. And says, why? I said, because you're going to be signing a lot of things. And he didn't really believe me, you know. So one day we're sitting at the diner at the place where we were staying, having dinner. And so people had their possessions and they were queuing up, lining up. Hello, Mr. Porter. Follow my program. <laughs> and he's sitting there signing things and he's sitting there getting cold and I'm chowing down. <laughs> so... Oh, he was dumbfounded. Then went the 2019, we went to Blackpool. That was amazing. 
that was, I think, the best time I had over there. It was in this winterland. The stage was huge, you know, and then they had the dance floor. Then they had, you know, place for the audience. And then there was a second tier of uh, seating upstairs. The last, uh, you know, when everything was over and they had, uh, it was Ann Sexton, Marcy Joseph, Eloise Laws, and Nolan. And so like, and, and Patty Austin. And so they were all on stage holding hands and, and had their hands up like this. And the look on Nolan's face was, it looked like he was getting ready to cry because he was going, they applauded for everybody. But when he came out, it was pandemonium. They were screaming. That's so 3,000 people in this place. Oh, that's oh, so great. Awesome. And I had the pleasure of getting up and singing with the background singers. I got to do that. I didn't have a formal gown on, but at least I got um, the English, the people in England are just some of the best. They're awesome, awesome people. They kept saying, why don't you guys move here? And when we talked about it, I said, God, you know, we could do that. We could move there and buy a little pub and call it Nolan's. I love I said, it. We'd have that place packed every night. Well, you'll have to include that in the in your story if you can write into what what would be the club, who would who would come, what does it look like? It could be an interesting <laughs> prompt for yourself. I learned the difference between a wine bar, a pub. A wine bar is downstairs. There's the area there where you sit and drink whatever, and there's your stairs, and there's like a little terrace. And then a pub is street level. That's hmm. you just walk into it. Interesting. I was... It is. Now that things are opening up a little bit, and I have not been to England. I have been to Europe, but I do look forward to going to England someday. England's great. I love it. Okay. Wales was just, that was astonishing, but it was so cold. It was like 10 degrees when we got there, you know, and the wind chill factor like made it even colder. But inside this building, when no one was, and the rest of the bands were performing, it must have been about 85 degrees. Outside, it was 10. But inside that, because it was like almost 4,000 people in there. Wow. It was amazing. And, you know, the greats are coming. Then there comes Nolan Porter. And I, see, I had asked him before we left, you know, if he had a gray suit. And he did. And he had a red shirt. Mm. And he, everybody else was wearing tuxedos, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not real bright in there. Mm -hmm. But he came out, he could be seen. So mm -hmm. I, I. Credit myself for that one. Probably looks smoking hot too. <laughs> he was smoking. Yeah. Yeah, he was a handsome guy. He never thought he was. I told I was telling him, you're a very handsome man. Very handsome. Everybody has their own vanity. I don't think he had it as much as he might have when he was younger because he had the the big fro mm -hmm. and he used to put jewels in it he'd wear a cape super dude <laughs> super nolan super nolan yeah as he got older he lost his hair the hats were the thing he wore lots of different hats in fact i bought him a hat not long before he passed it's one of those racing hats you know mm -hmm. with the, the bill that comes down yeah mm -hmm. and um that's my star and i'm sticking to it thank you for being here with me and sharing your heart and your thoughts and I learned so much and I feel like I've been with you and you're you know like with him like how you guys were and that beautiful ease and love and familiarity 
and I admire that. I really do. Thank you. And thank you for asking me. You're a very nice, uh, very nice lady. Thank you. I appreciate it. And if there's anything I can do, if you ever get stuck or you need help or just want somebody to bounce ideas off of, you know, related to your book, that's, that's what I do. I'd be happy to give you some inspiration or guide you or give you some uh, support in that way. Cause I know how important it is for you and you've helped a lot of people and there's probably times when you could use a little bit of help because you're so busy helping others. So I would extend that to you if I could ever help in that way. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Patrice Zappa Porter. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, where can they get information about your books? Very good. Mm-hmm. Okay, my books can be ordered from crossfirepublications.com, all one word. And my email is Patty Ford Five, which is P A T T I E F O R D number five at gmail.com. And we're going to look forward to reading your your future book that's going to be out sooner than later. We'll make it happen. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to try and get everything to my publisher by November and see if he can put it together. I mean, even if it came out the first of next year is okay. I'm just giving everybody a lot of time, you know, that I told, you know, if you want to send something in I, I they want to know when's the deadline I said I'd like to send it in by November so yeah so if anybody out there knows I... or knew Nolan Porter definitely help Patrice out with stories or photos or something that would really add to the experience of the book for sure yeah just send it to my email we'll get it going thank you Jana thank you so much Thank you so much for listening to part one of Identity Talk with me, Jana Lopez, as hostess and our guest, Patrice Zappa Porter. As I mentioned, you're in for a real treat with part two and my guest host, Ty Hitzman, a true Zappophile, and he gets down into the nitty gritty about Frank, Patrice's life, Nolan Porter and the Zappa family. So stay tuned, part two, with my guest host, Ty Hitzman, and guest Patrice Zappa-Porter. It's been said many times over that Frank Zappa was arguably the most variant and progressive musician in rock history. There were 60 albums of it produced uh, by him at the time of his unfortunate death of prostate cancer in 1993. And I'm continuing a conversation with Patrice Zappa Porter, Frank's sister, the youngest of the Zappa family. She is the only direct living sibling left. She has written a great book about her brother and family. My brother was a mother. It's now uh, in its third version. She's currently working on the fourth update edition. Hi, Patrice. How are you? Fine. How are you? Well, great. Yeah, I know Janet just uh, interviewed you, and I'd like to continue a little bit from her combo and concentrate a little bit more about your, your dad to start. I find your father very interesting person. I, I thought that from reading Frank's book and then of course yours that expounded a little bit more. I understand he you know he worked as a barber to like to pay for college uh, tuition, which I didn't know until your book, but he but he had like a major in history and he became a, a teacher in mathematics and um and, and many may not know that he wrote a book on how to use those skills to win at you know various things, gaming and so forth. And he was a meteorologist and more can you expand a little bit more on uh, 
his ventures in these fields? Yeah, he wrote a book called Chances and How to Take Them, and it was published in uh, 1966. And uh, one of the things I remember him doing in preparation for, you know, doing the book, he had a house in Montclair, California, mm. and there was a, we had a fireplace, so the, the carpet, then there was the brick, you know, the hearth right there where, where the brick was, and he would throw dice up against this brick and write down every progression. I used to sit there and watch him swing. <laughs> I, I didn't know, but now, you know, then I figured it out. That's what he was doing for the book. Uh, another thing he told me one time was if you have 23 people in a gathering, two people will have the same birthday. Really? You tested it out? Have you found it to be true? I think I did it one time, and yeah, two people had the same birthday. <laughs> He's a smart, smart guy. I understand his relationship with Frank a, a, a bit strained, perhaps with the other brothers as well. I know because you were the baby of the family and you explained that. And I understand he passed in 73. Frank, you know, he had much more to do. His music and his life morphed in, you know, in many ways, but it almost seems there could have been a sort of a shared camaraderie between the two, like, you know, sort of alchemy of, of sorts. And, you know, they say great minds think alike. It seems there may have been some sort of a cosmic crossing of sorts somehow that was missed between the two of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the other things with your dad, like he was a meteorologist, and um, was it for like a news station or? I don't know where his reports went to, but he yeah, he did do meteorology. There's a, I have a picture of him. I wish I had I could find it, but he's standing there holding onto a weather balloon. Yeah. Maybe some people have seen it. He was very creative in his mind. He liked yeah. n numbers were easy for him, and I must have been a dismal disappointment because I stated <laughs> out of algebra one with a D minus. Numbers together just don't make sense. Yeah, they, they don't to me either. Right? A plus Y equals Z or one or something like that. I, I don't get it. I, I don't either. We can see, of course, where Frank got his, uh, who he took after in that regard. But uh, Frank was like a C and D student, was he? Pretty much, he's, he's waxed on many times about you know the education systems and and his you know how dismal it was and, and all that. So so I understand he wasn't that great of a student, but a lot of geniuses weren't. I understand Einstein wasn't necessarily either. I don't think it was that he wasn't a good student. I think it was he was bored mm -hmm. with what they were teaching, teaching. because. He, he told, I think I there's a statement that he made that he knew more than the teacher was talking about. Sure. And that he quit college. He went to Chasey College for, I think, a year or two, and that's where mm -hmm. he met his first wife, Kay. But he just got sick of it. Sure. I think it's even worse now, but yeah, the education uh, systems, uh, they're worse now than, than, than they ever were. You've mentioned a bit about your mom and him coming over to play a bit of music. Was there anything that your dad, or your mom for that matter, that that they possibly liked, I guess, by 1973, at least for your dad, possibly maybe the jazz-oriented stuff, or was there any, anything that either, did Frank send it to them, came over and played Freak Out, but was there anything that maybe you played them or they heard where they thought something from Grand Wazoo maybe, or something that said, hey, that's pretty good? Or... I didn't talk much to my dad about what he thought of Frank's music. He was just very proud of him. I mean, he was. For what he accomplished, yes. Yeah. Uh, my mom always liked country western music, and mm -hmm. Frank, you know, I think he was poking a finger at oh, yeah. laughingly with Lonesome Cowboy <laughs> Bird. And uh, San Bernardino, possibly? San Bernardino. <laughs> well, no, that was more, I think that was more about his time in jail uh, when, he had, when he had the, the uh, uh, Studio Z. Yes, right. And they were, some guy was uh, posing as the detective. Yes. 
as a car Willis. Willis. He even came on our property one time. He went to West Frank. Father was five foot six, and, and Willis just towered over him. My dad was just poking his finger in his chest. Wow. Get off my, my property. property. And I'm standing there going, okay. Yeah. I always thought that was amazing, too, because you know, when Frank talked about, you know, nothing like with long hair and all stuff. But in those days, he still had short hair, and so but yeah. they still seemed to be out to, to get him in regards to that. It was quite a they were interested in catching him, I think, making movies. They thought he asked for a sex movie. Mm-hmm. And says, well, you know, you know, videos are kind of expensive. Why don't you let me do an audio? Right. So him and Lorraine, his girlfriend at the time, made oohs and ahs on the yeah. video. And they had to edit out the laughing, you know. And when the guy came the next day, and he handed him, uh, or Frank was holding on to the tape, and, and the guy says, well, here's 50 bucks. And Frank said, no. The deal was for 100 And at that moment, everybody bust in. And they just started taking things out of the studio. Mm-hmm. And he, he went, you know, they went before the judge. And the guy went to jail for 10 days. Yeah. Ugly jail, as he called it. Your uh, uh, mom and dad, uh, what was their take on all that? I think we became ostracized in our little community. The girls I used to walk to school with, I was no longer allowed on the property. Christy and I forget the other girl's name, Barbara or whatever. If you guys are watching, talk. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like I heard a recording. It may be a different, uh, it's on uh, the Lost episodes or something where a cop does come over. It may have been, uh, I don't know if it's the same uh, cop or not, but uh, I think it was over noise. And, and uh, Frank and, and uh, uh, Don are saying, have a bun, have a pineapple bun. You know, like we're, 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 we're trying to practice here. It's our livelihood and it's only 10 o'clock and he wanted to show up and be quiet. And they're like, would you like a bun? You know, <laughs> so there's another poke of the finger. Uh, well, later on, you know, when he, of course, your, your dad had passed in 73, but then your, your mom was arrested. But when he took on the, of course, the PMRC and he's a regular commentator on, I mean, CNN and uh, when they wanted that oddball opinion and all that. And then, and then what was it? He was on game shows. All the late night talk shows, I've seen all of them. Larry King, he did public service announcements, educational narrations. I can't help but think your mom and, and dad, you know, if not in total agreement with maybe the things that he said, that they would have just been astounded and proud. So I suppose since your dad was passed for your mom. There was one concert that Frank was going to do. I forget the place where it was. It was in Los Angeles somewhere. And Frank was going to send a limo out for mom and dad. And mom didn't want to go. So I had my son at the time. He was like two. Can I go? You know, I wanted to go. So she babysat for me. And my dad and I were in the limo. And when we pulled up, people were like all over them to see who it was. And then we get out. They don't know us, you know. So we go in and we sit down, and that was my first experience with it. Hmm, what is that lovely smell? Contact high. Anyway, there was the guy sitting next to my dad. I think his name was Harry Ruby. I'm not sure. But anyway, he nudges my dad, and he points to one of the musicians, and he says, see that guy? That's my son. (laughs) My dad looked at him and said, see that guy? That's my son. (laughs) <laughs> so he was proud in, in some oh, yeah. ways. That's good stuff. Um, so he said the smell. You know what Frank was saying? Now, now, Patrice. Oh boy, that it stuff was good too. <laughs> <laughs> so he did, well, since we, that's just mentioned, I'll, we'll just throw that in. So you know the drug thing, which Frank, Frank uh, explained many times over. What was your take on on his feelings about about uh, about all that? Um, I know that what? Jimmy Carl Black had. It, it said, hey, Frank, you know, 
I'll, I'll do what I want. If I want to drink beer and smoke weed, I'll do that. I'll perform well. And so he kind of let him do that. Well, I'm sure he smoked a couple of joints. He said yeah. it gave him a sore throat. And yeah. Wait, my God. I mean, he, he smoked Winston's or Pall Mall's. Yeah. Well, those are the ones with no filters. Yeah. So I don't Yeah. <laughs> why a joint would give him a sore throat. I don't know. Anyway, I, you know, wasn't doing anything. I never did anything like yeah. that. Do any drugs. He was against yeah. them. Yeah. And as he said, it gives some people a license to be an asshole. Asshole. Yeah. That's that's true. And then others not. But I think that was, a, it was, it was such a good influence regarding that because people would have thought certainly. I know I did before I was really ever into him. I, if, I probably didn't really think about it, but I probably would have thought, oh, this guy's this guy's a big doper. You know, but it's just it just goes to show. <laughs> so it was so I, I would concur with you know uh, you know with him on that. All the TV spots and the things like that. Your mom did your mom you know get to see some of that and the one thing that we got to watch was when he was on Steve Allen's show. Yeah, he was using both my brother Carl's bike and my bike. So he was playing the bikes. How long you been playing bike, Frank? Right. About two weeks. Yeah, so, yeah that was hilarious. <laughs> so that we got to stay up. That was on my birthday, I think, close to my birthday. But my mom let me stay up late and watch that. So other than that, as far as, I don't know, she might have seen interviews and stuff, but uh, she always wanted uh, to hear country western music. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move to Nolan real quick. So I understand you guys met at a karaoke bar. Tell me about that. Was it something, first of all, is that something you like to do or was it a fluke that you showed up there or did you regularly go? No, no, no. We, uh, I was asked to judge a karaoke contest at this place called Leon's Steakhouse, which is now a CVS. I met a woman there named Mary, Mary Lindell, and she, we just clicked. And yeah. we started talking about this and that. And she goes, I know this guy. His name is Nolan Porter. And he's a singer. And you should meet him. He's mm -hmm. great. And so she would go back and tell Nolan, I met Patrice Zappa, Frank's sister. And you should meet her. You know, and she sings great. Well, things weren't happening fast enough for her. Yeah. We, we'd talk to each other on the phone and blah, blah, blah. So one day she, I think it was... It was either his birthday or the day after his birthday in May. And she called me up and said, come on out to Leon's. We're having karaoke. And then she called Nolan and did the same thing. But I didn't know he was going to be there. And I don't think he knew who I was either. Mary might have told him later. When I walked in, there he was sitting at the table. And I'm like, what's he doing here? How can I have real talk with Mary when the guy is sitting there? Yeah. And he said there was his arms folded and he kind of like, leans over and looks up at me and he's got the smirk on his face and I went, oh my God, this guy's sprung already. <laughs> <laughs> so I sat down, we started talking and we thought, well, let's get up and sing a song. So we got up and sang Too Much, Too Little, Too Late by Johnny Mathis and Denise Williams and we're like looking at each other going, hey, this sounds pretty good. Yeah. You know, so we started singing together. It was, it kind of sealed it, you know, right then because now we're, you know, trying to figure out what kind of venues. Let's put something together and go out and see if we can get some guys. Because he used to have a band called Touch of Spice. And in this book that I'm putting together about us, there's some pictures of him with his band in it. So we just we just took off and started working, doing gigs, you know. Yeah. I mean, did you know who he was prior to that? No, I didn't. And <laughs> the song he had was uh, Keep On Keeping On. Yeah. And you remember Eddie Kendrick from The Temptations. 
Yeah. He did uh, Keep On Trucking. Keep and On Trucking, okay. I thought, is that your song? He goes, no, no, no. Mine was Keep On Keeping On. I went, okay, so now I had to, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> figure out who he was. And, and, and I thought, wow, this guy's got, he had albums out. Yeah. Albums out. One of those guys that slipped through the cracks because it certainly certainly did for me, and then through you, I started listening. Like this guy's great. There's there's a lot of people like that. It's like you know that are great. And didn't Steppenwolf uh, pick up on keep on keeping on? Is that the one? You know, I don't know if they did it. I um, I know the manager of Steppenwolf, Gabriel Meckler, and yeah. he did also did Three Dog Night. He yeah. discovered Nolan, and uh, Nolan was like classically trained he liked to sing oh. like operatic stuff and real substantial music yeah so he he sent uh nolan to jamaica and says, submerge yourself in reggae and learn some rock and roll learn some mm-hmm. other stuff you know so he came back and the rest is history they started was, making music so when you say he sent him to jamaica so he'd heard nolan or some of his stuff and he, he liked he, his voice he, he liked his voice so he's trying to you know, place him somewhere like that Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I really like uh, What Would You Do If I Did That To You. There's a couple right. other ones I listened to, but yeah, you know, really good stuff. Well, anything else about him and his music? Oh, he's, he was great. He just, he had, he loved to perform it, and he hadn't been doing much of it when we got together. We ended up moving in together about 2004. and 2005, I got an email from somebody, a friend of mine, who had gotten an email from somebody over in England. Mm-hmm. want to know if Nolan was still alive. And so he sent that to me, and I wrote them back over there in uh, Pre-Staten and thing, Northern Soul. Yeah, I've heard of that before. Yes. So I wrote him back, and I said, yeah, he's still alive. I live with him, and I told him who I was, and the next thing you know, they said, would you like to come over to Wales so he can perform? And I said, yeah. yeah. That sounds yeah. good. So we, they got a whole bunch of the acts from the 60s, 50s and 60s that, uh, that did the soul music. The genre. Yeah, and we all flew over there and it was it was just, I'll never forget, it was an experience. And from that time on, that's when his career started getting on again. And as oftentimes, it'll be, in, if not in the States, it'll be Europe because they seem so far ahead of, of, of America in those regards. Uh, you know, I know several like local groups from, from my hometown, from Portland, that are just you know, local, local musicians. We love them, but not really much touring and uh, album sales and so forth in, in the States. But uh, one group in particular, Dead Moon, where they're just just hot shit in, in, in Europe, especially in the Nordic uh, regions and stuff like that. And in some ways, Frank, too, in the Czech Republic and all that. What did Nolan think of, of Frank's music? Did he uh, know who he was or if he did what, anything oh, like yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, at one point, he said, well, he must have, Frank must have known Gabriel Meckler because uh, Nolan and Gabriel went up to Frank's house one time. Frank wasn't there. I think he was on tour, but he had some business to take care of up there. So, yeah. Oh, before could, you met Nolan. Yes. Okay, yeah, because I would have wanted to ask if they met, but then, of course, Frank passed in 93, and then, you know, 2004 and all. But, man, that's interesting. Yeah? Because yeah. I was going to say, it seemed, Nolan seems very much like the type <clears throat> of performer that Frank liked and, you know, often looked for. When mm-hmm. we talk about Napoleon, you got Ike, and especially like, you know, the international uh, uh, groups and things like that. And so he would find his talent from, from basically from the streets that works in a couple categories. One is the money that you have to pay somebody, probably what George Duke was already known, so he probably uh, 
needed a little bit more polished of a penny. But these, it just goes to show how much talent is out there that can be found. And Frank is really one of the few that I know of where maybe Steely Dan as well, where most people would go and look for names. Didn't Frank find Ike, or he's going to call it St. Louis or something like that? And, and Frank happened to see the band that Ike was in. And uh, as many Zappa files know the rest of that, but, but you know, it's, it, and everyone else has got a story too. They were basically, you know, nobodies of sorts. And there were yeah. the great musicians. I wanted to ask you, you know, like, I know you were, did you say 11 years younger? When I think of him and his genius, of course, was there any indications that you had? I know you got to hang out more with him when he kind of left home and you explained some of that and all that, but I mean, and then, of course, you were really little, but just growing up, like, you know, when he was there, did you, uh, for your age and all that, happen to notice things like, you know, he, was, he said he went to the library and learned, you know, music notation and stuff. And he was, was he writing these things? Did you see that and wonder what he was doing? Um, just, you know, kind of like the home life stuff that, that pertains to his brilliance, that kind of thing. I didn't get to hang out with him yeah. as much as I would like to have sure. done uh, when I was little. But he moved out of the house when he was 19, and which left my mom inconsolable. She just was oh. very upset about that. Yeah. But uh, then whenever Frank would come around, you know, he was special. So sure. it was like Christmas every day whenever he'd show up. And when we lived in Montclair, he had, uh, he was putting together, you know, songs for his first, I guess for the first Freak Out album. Yeah. One of them was um, Status Back Baby. Yeah. And he was going to have me sing that. Yeah. But something happened and sure. I didn't. <laughs> and then when in like 68, 69, he was going to have me do an album of songs that he wrote. It was going to, and he was going to call that yeah. My Brother is a Mother. Right. That's where the name of my book came from. And I just suggested that we call it My Brother Was a Mother. Uh-huh. I knew he was going to do something. I, I never doubted it. L loved being around him. He, you know, he was the the one person in the family that I could say what I wanted to. Sure. Uh, and I guess I must have been outrageous sometimes. My mom would get so exasperated. She goes, you're just like your brother, Frank. I like that. Yeah, and it's interesting because when you say that when you come to the house, it's like in Vent and all that, so people tend to think of his personality as kind of cold and often said, you know, he didn't have any friends and all that, but that's, you know, that's part of being a, you know, a boss, and, and he's, he's expounded on that, but to hear you say that, that you know, when you come home, it was, that he was, you know, very well liked, and, and, and with your mom and all that, and I think you'd mentioned before when we chatted or something, or in your book, possibly, that, you know, there was a couple places you went, oh, you wanted to see Studio Z, and your mom was it said, no, you're not going over there with him, and he said, when she left the room, he says, you're going, right? Stuff like that. He came over. I was sick one day from school, yeah. and uh, so I often got colds. Mm. And uh, he came over and said, "What are you doing home?" I said, "I'm sick." He says, "Well, maybe we're going on. I'll take you over to uh, a studio, Studio Z." I said, "Okay, well, let me call mom first because I'm sick." Yeah. So I called mom at work, and she says, "Okay, you better not, because uh, you know how your dad gets. Your dad's going to get really mad if you get sicker." said okay hung up the phone i said i can't go and frank gave me that that with the eyebrows would go oh like, yeah the straight you're look going. you're going <laughs> yeah <clears throat> so i went <clears throat> and he took me there and he walked me through the studio and he showed me 
all sorts of stuff. The, the uh, artwork that he was doing. Oh, the backdrops. Of, yeah. Yes, the Captain Beefheart versus the, the Grunt People. Grunt People. And uh, he's talking all the sets and designs and stuff. We started talking. He says, do you have a boyfriend? I said, no, I'm not allowed to date. And he says, <clears throat> didn't get that. And I was like 15, 15 or 16. I mean, I probably at his age, you know, he was he was the the uh, high school Lothario. But you know the story about the assembly. Oh yeah. Where in in high school, where he, when he was talking, and the one one interview was talking where he wore the hoodie mm-hmm. and the sunglasses. Yeah, he says that's the way I dressed every day to school. Right. I the was doing up. that back then. You know, so he was a trendsetter. You know. Yeah. God, he didn't do man buns. But anyway, um, <clears throat> girl was up on stage and she says, okay, everybody stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. That means you too, Frank Zappa. Oh, and he goes, fuck you. <laughs> I didn't hear that one. Oh, that sounds about right, though. Oh. And she has to be helped off stage. And he wrote, it was the worst James Brown impression I ever <laughs> Did he possibly include that in? Isn't there a part uh, the, the, one of the early albums? Is, I pledge allegiance to the flag. You know, he's like stating that, or somebody is in the background of one of those. One of those. It might have been status back there. I don't know. When you go, did you see Don uh, Don Van Vliet, uh, aka Captain Beefheart? Yeah, of course, he would, he would come over with Frank to the house. Uh, Mom would make chili on Friday nights. Mm-hmm. They came over to have some chili, and I was in my bedroom playing my guitar. Frank showed me chords to. Wow play and and his remark was now get to work mm-hmm. which he did and so I started writing songs I was just like writing songs and they were coming up so I played one for him and Don said he loved my voice you know he says your voice is just great yeah and Frank he smiled and in agreement and, and then they went out and had chili there was yeah. a lot of chili because the thing I remember Frank talking about he would go to uh that one restaurant, and uh, he would get to hear Three Hours Past Midnight, his favorite song. Yeah. They put that in the, uh, the the jukebox for him as long as he plugged quarters in, and they, he would eat good chili and listen to Three Hours Past Midnight, right? right? Yeah. So, uh, so with Don, did, did you get to ride in his famous, was it a Cadillac, and he had the, 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 uh, no. the wolf? <laughs> that was really sick. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you were right in there. Um, go with them. No, 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 no. So with the song thing, since you mentioned that. Uh, I, I would have forgot all about that. So he taught you some chords on there. Yeah. He, it seems like he spent a lot of time coming home. And then, and then with you, of course, because, you know, he was such a busy guy. That just adds to how he managed his time, all the interviews, and then just constantly wearing the music. And then, you know, with the bands and stuff. I mean, it's hard for just a four-piece band. But then, you know, like you read about the Beatles and when they wanted to use a, a, a you know small orchestra you know, lots of groups did so he was doing that on a daily basis you know and you know it's just so much that that he did uh but yet he seemed to spend a lot of time with family more than i would have of, of thought yeah that may have been a little less in later days just because of you know touring and so forth like that but it sounds like he was you know he came home all the time and i think the touring started after freak out yeah then he then they all went to new york to play at the Garrick. The Garrick, yeah. And so, like, he established himself there, and but he had to come home because he said it was too expensive to live in New York. Yes. He was 68. If yeah. it was expensive then, I can't even begin to imagine what it's like now. It must be off the hook. 
yeah. Side note here: last night I was watching, I think it was YouTube, and and there was an interview with Fran uh, Leibowitz, I guess, and she mentioned that New York. She, well, it's too expensive to live in New York now than ever because people still find a way to live here. That's what she said. Like I just caught that. That's interesting. You said, but yeah, it probably was. He seemed to like New York, not not LA, I guess. So he would come home and and uh, and you know, still you know find time for you guys and so forth. Those Garrick Theater shows that was like a cornerstone. I mean, that really taught them. I mean, they were doing what a nightly for weeks on end and yeah. all that, and that's when he was really starting to show his politics. You know, that was probably misunderstood at the time. The thing with the Marines coming in there, and he says, "Go get drunk and come back." They did, and then and then what, you know, he has this baby, and what would you do to that if you were, you know, Vietnam, all that, and they ripped it up and all that. It got blamed on the band when it was really it was an, a point of irony, much like Black Sabbath supposedly being satanic when they were they're wearing crosses. And they're talking about anti-war stuff, and that's really where Frank and the, and the mothers were, were, were going. It's just, uh, people are so superficial about lyrics and imagery and so forth. You can watch a Vincent Price uh, or a monster movie or something, and people get it. That whole misunderstood. Yeah, I mean the endless uh, practice sessions and and you know it's, it's the work at home. Um, you know, what's your take on his all the time that he spent just, just doing all this time? I'm surprised he had time to comb his hair. They don't have a family. Oh, look at his hair. I mean, does it look He like didn't it? comb it. <laughs> That's why he did all that stuff. He didn't comb his hair. <laughs> yeah, he was busy. I had to make an appointment to see him on Christmas Day one year, 81. I was dating this young man uh, at the time, and he made for us at home, at my house, he made Christmas dinner, prime ribs and the broccoli and, the, you know, all this. But he was a chef. He was a cook. And so my mom babysat my kids, and John and I went up to see Frank. And as we were walking through the house, there was Gail in the kitchen with a big pot of broccoli bubbling on the stove. Yeah. And I came down, came down into the studio, and Frank was sitting in a big stuffed chair. And I said, Frank, you should have been there. John made the best dinner, prime rib. And I started naming off all the stuff he, he cooked, and Frank's going, prime rib, huh? <laughs> I wonder what Gail's got cooked in <laughs> And he, I said, oh, she's got a lovely pot of broccoli for you on the stove. He sat down and he said, broccoli, huh? On Christmas Day. <laughs> oh. Rub it in, you know, just a little bit. Talking about the house. What did you think of that, that, that house? I never got to see what it looked like until, of course, it went up for sale. And then the uh, Zillow or whatever, they had pictures of every room. And, of course, most of their stuff is out there. And we know what the, you know, the, his, his office, the basement looked like and the, all that stuff. But, I mean, what a cool house. What did you think? Well, basically, the only uh, places I got to see was, like, the kitchen at that one time. Yeah. And the song Dangerous Kitchen. Yeah. Right. And then I was down in the basement, you know, in the bottom part of the house where the recording studio was. That yes. was tough. That yeah. was nifty, tough, and bitching. And then yes. uh, in the living room, the purple room. The purple room, yeah. Basically all I got to see. Yeah. Because like I said, on Zillow now, there's just all these rooms. And, and of course, uh, Lady Gaga owns that now. And I thought, what a perfect... A lot of people were complaining about that. And I think... Uh, I, I always thought she's kind of a, a genius, and I, I'm not really so much into her music, to what I've listened to, and then just her in general I, and what she's accomplished. So I can't think of a, of a, of a better uh, person to take over that house. And that, and that I think her latest album says, um, you know, something like recorded in the in the uh, in the FZUMRK, you know, 
Muffin Research Kitchen kind of a thing. So I think that's that that's uh, uh, pretty cool. I, I wanted to move into um, just for what you may you know may know if you're plugged in in that regard that. You know, his knowledge of musicology and, and so many other things, he had an encyclopedic knowledge and for a guy that I understand he never really was a reader. And I think that he, he, he stated that for a guy that didn't read his sense of so many subjects, you know, you may, it makes you wonder, it's like, was it in something inherent? Uh, I think uh, Ahmed had mentioned one time that, you know, he could uh, read something out of encyclopedia and then a month later, uh, somebody would bring up a subject and he would splay it out almost exactly like it was... You know, and so that kind of, he must have had some sort of, you know, inherent, if not a past life, you know, knowledge of things, uh, his innate ability to, you know, conceptualize various topics. He was asked to do a speech for a, a conductor's symposium or something where he used to get up and talk to schooled and trained conductors and so forth. And uh, I've read that. That's hilarious. He's saying, you know, get a day job. What you're going to end up eating is brown and lumpy and all that stuff. And he said, I have a high school education and, you know, all this stuff. So he's like, almost like light years ahead of these people, not only going to get conductors, but, but, but I understand them like most conductors don't necessarily play instruments, but, but either way, the, the, the musicians and or the conductors, you know, he was schooling them. <laughs> well, sometimes you don't have to do a lot of reading. You just listen. Sure. Keep your mouth shut and your ears open and your eyes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's something, but I just find it incredible. Uh, um, I had no idea. I mean, my everybody's got their own unique story, but mine in a nutshell was, you know, growing up, it, it seems like, you know, if I was asked or whatever, it's just a, a very distant where I thought, yeah, you're like, hey, do you think Yellow Snow something or was it a cartoon or something, you know? Uh, and then I think the dental floss thing, but I don't think I, I really ever heard anything. Maybe in high school, I'd heard the part of Dancing Fool. Hey, I got it all together with my disco clothes. I'd never really listened uh, to a full song until I was in high school and uh, I graduated in 82. And about in 80, Joe's Garage, the song was playing on the local KGON rock station there. And I remember hearing it when I was in it, like in a class. There was one class, I think it was a jeweler's class where we were able to have music in there. And I'd heard it quite a few times and I, I thought, this is like Joe Walsh meets Weird Al Yankovic stuff. I thought it was you know, curious and I knew it was Frank and I thought, yeah, and the only other thing I knew about him was that I had a grand funk album that is said produced by Frank Zappa. So I kind of, without ever thinking about it, I kind of thought the guy did music, probably failed, and then, then he's a producer or something like that. And he's joke songs and all that. I was actually offered to go to a concert that same year from a, a little girlfriend I had asked me if I wanted to go see Frank Zappa. It was that same year, uh, Joe's Garage. And I declined. So I thought, you know, and then I remember them coming back saying, God, he was so awesome and all that. That was all I heard. Then in, uh, was it 1987, I was working at a restaurant and this, the chef there would play music. He turned me on to things. And one day I heard some guitar on there. I thought, is that Santana? Is that whoever, you know? And then he walks in. He says, that's Frank Zappa. I says, what? So we went through all that. And I said, can you bring me something else by him? Sure. So he brought me an apostrophe. I took that home list. I'm like, I was just blown. I was like, I don't know what to think of it. And then it was one size fits all. And that's what hooked me because I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is, but this is awesome. And it just went from there. And then it wasn't just, just the music. It was like all the other things I started learning about him. So it's like I became a fan in so many different directions of this guy. Now with YouTube and all of the interviews and the things that are still coming out, it, it, it just amazes me. He's like five different guys. The whole presidential thing, I, I, I wish that he could have ran and George Carlin could have been the vice president. When was the last time you got to see him? I don't remember the last time I saw him, but I do remember the last time I talked to him over the phone. It was May of May of 92. Mm -hmm. I had called him up to see how he was doing, and uh, 
He says, well, I have my good days and my bad days. Today's one of my bad days. I said, well, don't worry, Frank. Hell doesn't want you and, no, heaven doesn't want you and hell's afraid you'll take over. And he laughed. <laughs> I thought that was funny. But um, I told him I loved him and I wanted to come and see him. And he says, well, not right now, you know. Yeah. He says, we're still on the same planet. And I'm thinking, yeah, for how long, though? But uh, I never got to see him after that. I did write him a letter in time. It was a three-page letter. He called me at work. He wanted to speak to Candy Zappa. And I answered the phones. I was a receptionist. I said, hi, Frank, it's me. Yeah. He said, why, you sound like a baritone woman in your old age. Do you, do you think that song was written for me? Women of the baritone women, yes. <laughs> anyway. He maintained that sense of humor. He had a very stoic... Seemed to he had a very stoic position regarding you know the illness. Didn't seem to stop him any. Sometimes I've I've heard people wonder if he somehow thought he was going to be able to, to beat it. But then there's of course a couple of interviews, of, um, one in particular where I forget which it was. Probably May of that that same year, you know, where he seemed a little more resigned to it. But it didn't it didn't seem to st to stop him. They were asking him like, how do you want to be remembered? He said it doesn't doesn't make any difference and. Um, I would disagree with him on that. I think a lot of people would. He would. He absolutely will be remembered and is. And uh, you know, he was. Uh, he may not have had any idea about just how huge he was, is, and is going to continue to be. Anything can happen, but I. He's going to be a tough act to follow to beat in so many different directions. I don't think we've got that, that humanity has begun to scratch the surface on the importance of your brother. I think he had a might have had an inkling of uh, his mortality because, I mean, he was only 52. Yeah. And I'm 70, so I figure if I've outlived that, I got a ways to go. It's like being on a deadline, okay? You got a lot of stuff to do. So he was just cranking stuff out yeah. and working like a demon, you know, getting trying to get everything done. Yeah. The same thing with Nolan. I think that a couple years before... He was, they told him he had advanced liver cancer. He started losing weight and he was not feeling well. And when put it in your face like that, hey, this is what you got. You kind of have to rearrange your thinking. So we were doing all sorts of stuff last yeah. year. Yeah. We were going all sorts of places because he, he, without saying it, I think he knew that he wasn't going to be around, but he wanted to give me a good time. Sure, sure. Take me, take me places so I'd have, you know, enjoy it. The time came, you know, and I was, I'm just glad I was able to be with him. Sure. When it all ended. And uh, places in particular you guys uh, that, that wanted to take you to or you wanted to go? Or? We just, we, I'm up here in Ventura now. I've been wanting to live here for over 30 years. And I finally got my wish, unfortunately, without Nolan, which yeah. I wanted him to be here yeah. but it, we would come up here almost every weekend and visit yeah. my daughter who i live with now we would come up here and just go to all the different motels here even though with the the shutdown and everything yeah some places were still open up here yeah mm -hmm. so we went to the pierpont Inn, which is just fabulous couldn't believe how beautiful that place was and yeah. just all different kinds of places our favorite haunts and we go out to eat and just have a good time. And yeah. he wanted to show me that at the time before, you know, he wasn't able to do it anymore. And it and that happened, his his immobility happened like 
the end of October into November. And that's when he started taking the cancer medications. And I think those, I think the medications are worse yeah. than, than the disease. That's what, yeah, that's it's what just, they say in many cases, yeah. With, with the prostate cancer, I think it was it wasn't too long after that that they made some major breakthroughs. Possibly would have worked, but that's been a, certainly a, a fairly common thing uh, has been. But they've made big strides in in that department. We can get this back. I mean, your dad was working uh, for the military, all that, and we talked before about volunteered for some different testing. They put things on his you know arm, that kind of thing, and then he would bring some things home. And I think you or Frank had mentioned something about he. His dad brought back some mercury, and Frank was hitting it with a hammer. It was exploding everywhere and all that. So, you know, as far as, like, your brothers, because they all seem to pass from, you know, various things, and it's nothing nefarious necessarily. People die of different things, but I couldn't help but think possibly if there were some, maybe even with your dad, with different chemicals and stuff that were around. I know there was your dad had gas masks for you guys for various reasons, understandably. If you think that there's possibly any contribution uh, that that could have happened uh, that you want to speak about, you know, you got. I think most people know about Bob uh, and his disease, which I forget the name of, and then and then your brother Carl. Anything you want to? If there's any weight to any of that at all, that you think or? Well, with Carl, he he passed last November along with my sister Anne, who was from my father's first marriage. I have his death certificate, and there's nothing mentioned on it about COVID, but that's what they said he died from. I see. Okay. Well, a myocardial infarction or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I do with his heart. He had uh, diabetes. He had, you know, those kind of things. Okay. Passed down from my father. Yes. My father, my father. I got it. Carl got it. Bob and Frank didn't get it. But mm. Bob got amyloidosis. Right. That's the the stuff that his doc told him that he thought our father had, but didn't know anything about it. Yeah passed it on so then he told bob told me to get tested i did and i carried the mutant gene my mom she just passed from she was like 91 they said she had diabetes mellitus i mm -hmm. have no idea what that's about because she never took any medication for that i think so, it's for the type 2 or something for, for my medical yeah. background but as far as carl he was not retarded but he was not as, I don't know how to explain it. He, Lower possible. He lived in his own world. Mm -hmm. And he was babied by my parents. So he never went out to live on his own. He always lived with my parents. And then when my mom passed, you know, he got kicked out of the house, came and lived with me. And then he moved to uh, Arizona with his friend Jerry I was telling you about. Yeah, right. He uh, stayed with Jerry until Jerry passed. And now... And then he moved to Michigan with Jerry's family because they wanted him. So yeah. it's just like me. I'm the last one standing. <laughs> last one standing. Well, you seem to be doing, doing it very well. So your kids, just tell me about, about your, what you want to say about your, your own kids. I have a son who is 51. And he lives in Idaho with his wife. Works with his hands a lot. He manages uh, businesses. He's very. He's a good man. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I haven't seen him for a long time, but uh, mm -hmm. he hates California. And I... You know, I understand. My daughter Julie, she's a massage therapist. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. He, uh, she's forty-seven. Just, you know, she's beautiful and very smart. She, you know, if it wasn't for her, I don't know what I would have done after Nolan passed. I don't know where I would have gone. Mm -hmm. 
told me to come here, so I did. Yeah. Mablock, did, the beach, come on. Oh, I man, yeah, he was not like, yeah. Was a friend really? was there. Did you say that one of them was her with the other one that lived uh, not too far from me? I lived in uh, Cottonwood. She's, she's closer to uh, this area here, her and her husband and my granddaughter. I have a grandson, too. My son, oh. has a, a boy, he's a uh, baby and is uh, going to be 28 this year. December. Yes, I do know who Damien is. Yes, and he's a he, musician? He plays bass. And then my granddaughter, who's uh, Ellie, she's uh, 12. Ah. That just blows me away. <laughs> she, was like, she was just a baby a minute mm -hmm. ago. It goes fast, yeah. doesn't it? So they're all scattered all over the place. The Zappa clan continues. Glad that you have uh, your your kids, and, and they seem like they're all doing well, and you're I'm glad that you that they stepped forward and, and you're with Julian and Ventura. Well, thanks for hanging out and, and talking more. You're an interesting person on your own. I'm so happy that you had accepted my friendship that while back, and, and I always enjoy your, your posts and, of course, getting to know um, Nolan and his music, and we want that to continue. So, oh, I do want to say... People don't forget Patrice Porter Zappa's book, My Brother Was a Mother, and then Nolan Porter's great Northern Soul releases, No Apologies, and self-titled Nolan is now on one album. Uh, it includes his version of Screaming Jay Hawkins, I Put a Spell on You, and also used in the film The Quickie. And Somebody's Gone, uh, Little Feet founder Lowell George, and I think also Zappa alumni at one point, wrote for Nolan, and they're all available on... Actually, uh, the... The website is the best place to get it at okay. crosswirepublications.com. Frank Vincent Zappa Sr.'s book called Chances. How to Take Them. How to Take Them. I definitely want that book. Uh, I think it's uh, th that's a cool thing, so don't forget about that. And they're all on the back of uh, Patrice's uh, book that, that we just mentioned, too. So uh, with that, thank you again, Patrice. And we'll, well, we'll talk thanks. again. I hope right. so. Well, there it is, a two-part, very special episode of Identity Talk. And thank you to my guest host, Ty Hitzman, for doing an amazing job of combing over all the finer details that true Zappophiles, as I said, love, need, and crave. I hope you've enjoyed both of our conversations with Patrice Zappaporter, and I look forward to connecting with you again very soon on another exciting episode of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I've had a fantastic time. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. For questions or comments, reach me at janalopez.com. And when you're having a moment of identity doubt, just remember that seeing is relieving. <laughs>